Good morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin this morning. We want to welcome everyone to the services here at West Irwin. And if you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here and we want to invite you back at any opportunity that you might have. As we begin our services this morning, let's all stand as we sing the first song this morning. These first couple of songs have a lot of parts, so men and women need y'all to sing out. Here we go. Our first song is The Great Redeemer. How I love the great Redeemer, who is doing so much for me. What a joy I tell the story of the love that makes me free. Till my earthly life is ended, I will
of you here at West Irwin Church Christ and those who are live streaming. Uh, tonight there is a Bible study by Bill Allen in the chapel at five o'clock. The series is entitled Challenging and Encouraging Chapters from the Bible. Also tonight, prayer night, youth and families will meet in the lighthouse, ladies in room 112 and men in room 403. The Benevolence Center will be closed this week, November 22nd through 26th. Uh, this Monday is Karen Kitchen from 5 p.m. to 7. And the West Irwin Food Pantry needs some saltine crackers. And the sewing ladies need some cotton or polyester blend fabrics for diapers and small quilts. A pie and coffee devo which will be led by some of our young fathers and sons this Tuesday, November the 23rd at 6.30 in the Family Life Center. There will be no Wednesday evening services this week. And December's coming up, so we're asking for volunteers to help deliver poinsettias to our widows and shut-ins. Meet at the Family Life Center on Saturday, December the 4th, 9 o'clock to 9.45. For any questions, contact David Hammond. Our love and sympathy are extended to Donna and Ponder Wright and Audrey in the loss of Donna's mother, who passed away last Sunday. Services were this past Friday. And Carolyn Warmack, Ralph Henderson, and Marcia Richardson's mother, Margaret, are at home. Coworker told me his, his mother passed away over a year ago. Tradition was that they gather around the table and the mother will have them to proclaim what they were thankful before they could sit down for their meal. And now she passed away and his brother informed me that everybody's coming to his house and they would continue on the tradition. And I was thinking, what will I proclaim? And I was thinking about all the presidential proclamations. George Washington issued a proclamation, and various other presidents have issued them. And the difference between an executive order and a proclamation is a executive order is for those who are within the government, and proclamations for those who are outside the government. In our history of our country has proclamations all the way up to, I think, the earliest one, 1623. And I was reading a proclamation from Governor John Hancock. The state of Massachusetts, they've been at war for five years with Great Britain. They convene, sign a constitution, first constitution, became a model for the United States Constitution. In that, they established a governor, and John Hancock was elected governor. That was October 1780. Five years of war, economy is in ruins, the people are struggling. And I was reading the proclamation. He set a day aside for public thanksgiving and prayer he talks about what to be thankful for and what to pray for. Victory for their forces on land, victory for their forces at sea, and various other items. One for that Christianity will be spread throughout the earth. And a coworker called us all together and asked us this past week what we are thankful for. Various things were said. A new smartphone with a super app. A new employee said a job. Young men married have a home now. 
Another young man say, a child's coming. Another one says, a grandchild. Various things were said. Came back to the employee who asked for people to state what they're thankful for. And basically, he said, last week, the doctors told me I had maybe a year to live. And then he began to say what he was thankful for. Future is uncertain. John Hancock, future was uncertain. At the end of the John Hancock proclamation, he signs it. And then he says, God save the people of the United States. What are you thankful for? And I was thankful for that. We have salvation and a relationship with God. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, as we live in a world where there are so many things that can trip us up in our life's journey, we are thankful for being here this morning with our spiritual family who welcomes us, encourages us, loves us, and help us keep our focus and faith upon you. Father, we lift our prayers for peace and comfort to be upon Donna and Ponder and Audrey Wright. We pray for the continuing improvement of Carolyn Wimack, Ralph Henderson, and Marcia Richardson's mother, Margaret, and all those who are on our prayer and care list. And Father, we are thankful for those in the military, our health care workers, our teachers, and all those who are willing to help one another. We pray that our government leaders will restrain evil upon this world and provide civil order and justice. And Father, we are thankful that we live in a land that sets aside a work day to deserve our blessings in this life and to live in a country where your word can be found in abundance and be able to worship you without fear. And we're grateful that you bless our farmers, ranchers, and workers in the fields that provide us a bountiful harvest from the earth that you created. Protect us against evil that desires in our lives or homes in this land we live in. We ask you for your hedge of protection. For us, our families, from disease, violence, and temptations of this world. And provide our parents' knowledge and wisdom to direct and guide their children in your ways. We're thankful for each one of us here, our staff, teachers, deacons, and elders. And bless Bill Allen this morning in presenting the word in such a way that strengthens and encourages our faith. Bless us all with wisdom and knowledge to lead and help anyone who is in need. Again, Father, thank you for the freedom that we have here to assemble together. During this worship time, we ask that our minds are clear from the distractions of this world and that our worship will be in spirit and truth and in unity. For we are grateful for the hope we have in Jesus, who showed us that you are a loving God who loves this world, a God not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's sing the Overrated Cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I
Wednesday evening classes, we've been talking about how to unhurry, um, just talking about slowing down a little bit. Um, the pace that we move at, the, you look around at the world around us, and it's just out of control how fast it's moving. Um, it's just crazy. So you got to ask the question, how did we get here? Well, going way back, uh, 1500 BC, we had the invention of the sundial, which uh, seems a little bit silly, but... This is what a Roman playwright named Plautus had to say about it in 200 B.C. He said, The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him, too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. So a sundial that we laugh at, a a guy got so mad at it that he wrote a poem about it. Then we have the mechanical clock in the 12th century. Uh, The monks started using that to rally... Uh, other monks to the monastery at different times of the day for prayer. And then the public clock tower. The first one was in 1370 in Cologne, Germany. And that was a a really big thing. As I was writing this the other day, I looked around and in my office I had six different ways to tell time within ten feet of me. So we've come quite a ways from a sundial. Uh, Here's a quote. It says, We went from waking when our bodies were done resting to whenever our alarms tell us to. Another huge invention along the way was the light bulb. Um, I'm thankful for light bulbs. They're awesome to be able to, to, be able to see each other, and it allows us to do, to do a lot of things. Um, but listen to this. Prior to the invention of the light bulb, the average human got 11 hours of sleep per night. Um, so before I heard this, whenever I would think back on the saints of old that would wake up at 3.30 in the morning to go and pray and, and read and stuff, I would just be so amazed um, but you think about it, they were going to sleep at 6 o'clock the night before, and so not, not nearly as impressive whenever you think about it like that. Um, now the average American gets seven hours of sleep per night, and if you have a, a puppy, it's a lot less than that. Um, then 2007, um, we have clocks, we have light bulbs. 2007 was another huge year, and one that history books will look back on, and it was probably in your pocket right now, it was the invention of the iPhone. It was whenever the iPhone was released, and uh, Facebook was released to the public, and Twitter, and it was just a big explosion that, that's led to where we are today. Uh, the speed that we move at is not healthy for our souls. Whenever you look back at Jesus, uh, one thing that you saw was that, yes, he was busy, yes, he had a full life, but he didn't, he was never in a hurry. He was never in a hurry. He was always present to the moment. And I'm afraid that whenever you look at how fast we move, how fast the world around us moves, one thing that we've lost is the ability to be present. It's hard to just sit and not have your mind wander anywhere and everywhere. So with that in mind, I want to try something. And it might make you a little uncomfortable, but go ahead and close your eyes if you would. Close your eyes. So I want for you to imagine that you're sitting in an apartment in the middle of the city. So you're in an apartment, middle of the city. The window is open, and it's very loud outside. There's cars honking, construction noises from a few blocks away. Uh, You can hear people on the street talking. Maybe there's a little yapper dog that won't be quiet. It's just a big mess of noise. So with that in mind, there's someone standing in front of you, a person, and they're telling you something. You're doing everything in your power to hear them. Your focus is entirely on them. You zone in completely on their words, 
And because of that, you're able to hear them. You're aware of the outside noise, but you're choosing to back away and focus on the person in front of you. Okay, I want for you to go ahead and grab the bread out of the cup, if you would. Once you've got that, just hold it in your hands. And you can close your eyes again if you want. So I know you've probably got lunch plans, laundry to fold, football to watch, maybe a stressful deadline at work coming up, uh, family coming into town for Thanksgiving, or maybe you're traveling. But none of those things matter right now. They're just noise coming from the outside, and I want for you to block it out. Focus on what's in front of you right now. You're sitting at the table with Jesus Christ, and your focus is entirely on him. You're looking at him, reading his lips, and then he says these words. This bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we could never thank you enough for the sacrifice that was made on the cross. We, we know that you give us the opposite of what we deserve. We know that we are deserving of hell, uh, but you give us eternal life with you. As we take of this bread, uh, may we be fully present to you. Help us to focus our minds on the sacrifice that was made and on your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, now I'm not going to ask you to pour the juice into your hand, but we're still at the table. Jesus is still sitting across from you, and I want for you just to look into his face and be present to him. Because truth is, this is the most important moment of your week. Nothing is more important than this, this moment right here. So if there's ever a time to be present, this is it. So still at the table looking at Jesus, and he says this now. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue sitting at your table, we thank you again for the blood that was shed. That should have been our blood, and we know that, but in love, you sent Jesus to die in our place. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we receive through this blood, and we thank you for the hope that we have because of it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so going back to the series that we're going over on Wednesday nights, um, like I said, it's all about slowing down, but really the whole point is just fighting back, fighting back from what we know is normal, and um, slowing down is what we're focused on, but there's a whole lot of ways that you can fight back, and one of the best ways is to give. It's generosity. Um, I want for you to listen to these words from Jesus. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So notice This right here, this statement isn't a command. He's not saying, you should give, or I command you to give. He's just simply stating a fact. He's saying, I, as God's son, um, God, creator of all things, he created things to work a certain way, and this is one of the ways that he created it, and that's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, There's nothing that we can do to change that, and we know that. And so we can either live into that, or we cannot. And if we live into it, we know that that's whenever we start to experience the life that Jesus talks about um, with God. And so I challenge you this morning, uh, just be thinking about that. Thinking about this is, this is how God created things to work. And so you can either live into it or you can't. Let's pray one more time. Uh, Lord God, we are so blessed by you. You've showered us with material blessings of all kinds. And uh, we're, we're so thankful for those things. And, and we praise you for them. Uh, but Lord, we pray that we would remember the source of it all, which is you. And we pray that we would remember the uh, ultimate blessing, which is Jesus dying on our behalf so that we would have a relationship with you. Help us to live according to that fact and knowing that that's just how things work and help us to live into that. And Lord, I pray that we would give with joyful hearts, with, with a joyful spirit, uh, no matter what we're giving, time, money, whatever. Um, just help us to pour ourselves out for your glory, and, and Lord, we know that uh, the gift that we receive because of that far outweighs anything material that we could ever have. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing thank you, Lord, and invite our kids up for kids' time today.
Thank you, Lord, for loving me, and thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole and saving my soul. I want to thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Let us all with one accord sing praises to Christ our Lord. Let us all unite in song to praise him all day long. I want to thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. How many of you know what Thanksgiving is? Okay, it's a special day and it's coming up, isn't it? What are you going to do on Thanksgiving Day? What are you going to do? Eat turkey, and what else? I'm sorry, I can't hear you, sweetie. Say that again. You're going to Mississippi. I hear they have great Thanksgivings in Mississippi. That is a great thing. What you are going to do? You're just going to go with your grandparents. Okay, just another day with the grandparents. That's great. You're going to take pictures with them. That's good. What are you going to do? You're going to eat? Eat ham. Okay, not a turkey man on the front row. We're eating ham this Thanksgiving. Oh, good. You're going to invite some family members. That's a good thing. Oh, you're going to do what? You, you like audience? Is that a game? All these things. Okay, thank you for the translation there. That's good. Boy. Man, that is really good. I like, do you like all these things too? I like all these things. One more. You're thankful for all your family. Now, see, he's got the right idea because he's not just talking about what we're going to do or who we're going to see or what we're going to eat or what we're going to play or do, but he's also talking about what we're thankful for. And you know what? We are thankful for all of those things, aren't we? We're thankful for grandparents. We're thankful for friends that we can invite over to our house and family members. You like macaroni? We're very thankful for macaroni and cheese. That's right. And it's not just the kids that are thankful for macaroni and cheese. The parents are very thankful for macaroni and cheese, too, because we want you guys to at least eat something. So thank you for macaroni and cheese. Well, This week, we're talking about Thanksgiving and how wonderful it is that Jesus came and gave his life for us. And that is the thing that we are most thankful for, just like we sang in that little song we just did. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And that's a great, great thing. Now, before you go, Mr. Gary is going to come back up. I think some of you call him G. And he's going to come up, and he's going to help us get to our next part of our service. You love your mom and dad. They're glad to hear that. That is a good thing. Let's all stand as uh, the kids go to kids time and before Bill's lesson. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. especially thankful for our children, our grandchildren, our little nieces and nephews, all of our children that are a part of our, our church family here. What a great, great blessing 
they are to all of us. And as we consider this coming week and Thanksgiving and being grateful, uh, we're grateful for uh, the blessing of being with family members and friends that we're sometimes not able to be with and mindful of those that we'll be missing during this time because of our traveling or because of the travel of others. As we said, we are going to be having a lot of activities coming up. Our shepherd, David Wick, shared much of those. And we'll be uh, having our our special pie devotional and coffee this coming Tuesday night without anything planned for Wednesday night. So be sure and make note of that. There are a lot of other holiday parties that are mentioned in the bulletin. There are some sign-up sheets out in the foyer. So I hope that you'll remember to take advantage of all of those. As we uh, consider this series of sermons that we've been going through over the last several weeks, uh, today marks the end of that sermon, of that series, How to Be Good Bad Guys. Um, And this may be a very timely sermon for many of us as we look forward to being with people that we don't always get to be around in the week ahead and in the next couple of months of the holidays. Being, bu- being good bad guys means obeying both the greatest and the second greatest commands. That should go without saying, uh, but today we're saying it anyway, that we're called to go about our lives loving God and loving the world. Now that may seem like a strange title uh, to you and a strange statement to even make. And I get that. But that's what Jesus said, that we are to love God, the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Last week, we spoke of this great call and the greatest commandments, and we shared about them from the perspective of Ephesians 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And so as Christians, we are committed to truth but we're also committed to love. And those are not uh, against each other. They don't contradict. They actually complement each other. And we see that especially in the life of Christ. So as we consider this uh, series today and as we consider this thought of loving God and loving the world, this this morning I want us to um, consider the tension that that brings and the discomfort sometimes that it brings. It seems to me like if we sold out to truth and didn't care about love, if we sold out to love and didn't care about truth, if we sold out to the first and greatest commandment without worrying about the second great commandment, our lives would be much easier because then we wouldn't have that difficult time where we are at odds with other people and how to, how to handle that. And so this morning, I want us to face that tension and talk about it directly. And as the saying goes in our world today, to try to help each other lean into the tension. Because I think that's what Jesus did. What does all of this look like? Well, first of all, loving the world without loving worldliness. If you're a little bit uncomfortable about the statement, loving God and loving the world, this might help. (laughs) Let's define some terms, shall we? We're talking about loving God and loving Him and His will, which calls us to love the world, but to do that without loving worldliness. In John 3, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says that, Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever uh, would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For, he says, the Son of Man did not come to uh, judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world. And God did that in just a masterful way. And what what a wonderful moment we shared earlier around the table as Tucker led us. Uh, in seeing Jesus across the table and sharing that moment um, with him. 
And so we get that. We are to love the world the way the Father loves the world. But then there's this statement that you're very familiar with in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. (laughs) And so the tension there is very clearly stated. (laughs) You have one verse, John 3.16, that says God loves the world. And then you have another verse, 1 John 2, that tells us, do not love the world. How do you reconcile those? How can they both be true statements? Again, we define some terms and we realize that when we're using world in this way, we're not talking about worldliness. There's a difference. We are people of the world. We are human beings. That, that is a given. And that's something that is true, whatever our background, whatever our beliefs. But we can be in the world without being of the world, as the saying goes. We can love the world without loving worldliness. And obviously, that's what Scripture is speaking of. For God so loved the world, the people in the world, that He gave His one and only Son. And yet that son tells us through his inspired writer, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, do not love the world or anything in the world. Our shepherd David Wicks reminded us of that great verse in Acts 17, verse 30, that God does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. And so he loves the world. And that's why he gave his son. And that's why he calls us to repent. But he does not love worldliness. He calls it sin. And he tells us that we're not to love that either. So loving God and loving the world means loving the world without loving worldliness. Now that's great when you're speaking in general terms. But when you start getting specific, and you start interacting with friends or family members or fellow students or co-workers or neighbors who don't see it, things the way you see them, how, how do we do that? How do we love the world without loving worldliness? How do we love God and love the world? And When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what if that neighbor is opposed to us and to our beliefs and is living a different kind of life? That's where the tension comes in. That's where this call to be good bad guys comes in. If others who disagree with us are going to consider us the bad guys, then how can we do that? How can we lean into that? And be good, guys, even though we're considered to be the bad guys. How can we love God and love the world? How can we love the world without loving worldliness? And how can we hate sin without hating the sinner, without uh, resenting the person? And that's what we call living with tension. And that's the second part of our message today. We are, to, we are called to be loving the world without loving worldliness, and that puts us in a place of tension. And that means loving the world without loving worldliness means living with tension. <laughs> we would like to say, oh, well, if we'll just do this, then the tension will go away. It won't be difficult anymore. But that's just not true. It's just not true. Let's talk for a minute about why that is. In John 1, and we've mentioned this verse many times, verses 14 and 17, 
John records that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came to reveal grace and truth. That's why the Word became flesh. Not grace only, not truth only, but grace and truth. In 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter calls us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, if he had just said one of those two, there wouldn't be this tension. We could grow in grace and accept everybody no matter what. Or we could grow in knowledge and be committed to the firm doctrine of the truth no matter what. But Peter says to grow in the grace and knowledge. If we're just doing one of those two, we're not being faithful. But to do both brings tension. It, It brings tension. And we're called to live with that tension. Jesus did that as well. In Matthew chapter 9 is this story where Jesus quotes that great statement um, uh, from Hosea chapter 6. And we read about that here in Matthew chapter 9 in the calling of the apostle Matthew. As Jesus went on from there in verse 9 of Matthew 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Typically, what someone would do is they would walk all the way around that. They would not interact with him at all. They actually resented him. He was an outcast. He was a sellout, this Matthew. Instead, Jesus stops at that booth. Follow me, he told Matthew, and he got up and followed him. But it gets worse. (laughs) Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, quote unquote, came and ate with him and his disciples. Why is that? Because that's the only people who would come to Matthew's house. When the Pharisees saw this, verse 11, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quoting Hosea 6.6. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Matthew chapter 12, he brings up this scripture again. As he he and his disciples are criticized because they're uh, doing things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders think is a violation of the law. Going through the grain field to get something to eat or even healing a man with a shriveled hand. And Jesus remembers that verse from Hosea 6 there as well. And so Jesus spent his life living with tension as well. And we could talk about many other examples of this, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. If he had just not started to talk to her, there would have been no tension. She would have been a little bit uncomfortable because this Jewish man was there when she wasn't expecting anybody to be there, but no words would be spoken, no contact would be made, no confrontation. No acceptance given, no truth spoken. And they would go about their way. Or perhaps Jesus interacting with the rich young ruler when he told him the one thing that would drive him away. He had made, fulfilled all the commandments, he said, and Jesus agreed. And then Jesus told him, your heart is filled with materialism and worldliness. You need to get rid of all of that so that there will be no barrier between you and God. And the man went away sorrowful. The woman that was caught in the very act of adultery, Jesus Jesus could have ruled with the mob and said, oh, she's guilty of sin, the law is clear, you're right, we should stone her to death. Or he could have uh, been accepting and loving and gracious and merciful, and after every, all of them was left, he he, he asks her the question, well, where are those who accuse you? And she says, there is no one, sir. And he could have stopped it right there. But instead he said, leave your life of sin. Grace and truth. Loving the world without loving 
worldliness. Loving and accepting this woman without condoning her life of sin and being willing to share the call of God into her life that says, you've got to do better. You've got to do better. Even when Jesus was interacting with Pilate, John's gospel tells us that he had some interaction there and he showed Pilate more respect than the Jewish leaders did. And theirs was all couched in power and what they could get from him. Jesus wanted nothing from him. But he talked to him about truth and he talked to him about power and who has the real power here. And Jesus affirms to him that it's not you, governor, and, and it's not the mob that brought me to you. And your ruling here is, is really not the main issue. The main issue here is truth, something Pilate had forgotten about. We, of course, could go on and on. We could look throughout the New Testament and see examples of New Testament leaders, writers of Scripture, apostles such as Paul when he talks about the difficulty, the burden that he has for the church in 2 Corinthians 11. And sure, that's a burden that he wants them to be saved, but why? Why is that? Well, because, because they are so often doing things that are contrary to the will of God. And Paul admits that his life was filled with burden and tension because of that. I like this quote from Matt Smethurst. He wrote, Legalists treat gray issues as if they're black and white. Theological liberals treat black and white issues as if they're gray. Mature Christians, gladly submitting to God's Word in a healthy church, do the harder work of holding truths in tension and resisting easy extremes. Probably the first sentence or two that I read, you're more comfortable with one or the other, not both. Legalists treat gray issues as if they're black and white. And you're probably thinking, well, that's exactly right. They do. Theological liberals treat black and white issues as if they're gray. <laughs> that's exactly right. They do. They don't stand for the truth when the truth should be stood for, or they're standing for the truth when the truth doesn't say that. It's not quite so clear. It's very likely that both are right. Mature Christians, gladly submitting to God's Word in the healthy church, do the harder work of holding truths in tension and resisting easy extremes. You see, if we go to the extremes, if we accept grace only or truth only, it's easy. It's easy. There's less tension, but it's wrong. And it's not the way of Jesus. And it's not going to give us any credibility with the people that we're trying to reach in this world. It's much more difficult that's true. But it's the way of the cross, and it's the way of Christ. So much of Scripture is talking about how Christians deal with each other in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians throughout. And so again, instead of taking the easy way out of one extreme or, or the other, we lean into the tension. We don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. Yes, that's true but it makes us more like Jesus than if we just avoid it. Remaining true to the truth and obeying Bible teaching is what we're called to do, and that includes remaining true to the command to live with grace and mercy. And to do both of those is hard. It's hard. But it's what we're called to do. We may do it um, imperfectly. We will do it imperfectly. But we're called to do that. And it gives us a life of joy. And so loving God and loving the world today is talking about living with joy. Living with joy. And there are several scriptures there under this last point. Living with joy. There's that call to rejoice in the Lord always from Philippians 4. There's the reminder in Hebrews 12 that Jesus himself 
looked at all the suffering and in all the pain, and yet for the joy set before him, endured that tension, endured the cross. And so I want us to think for just a moment about this scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Because it says this, three great points, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Well, that's, uh, that's hard. <laughs> it is hard. And when you think about the Thessalonians that Paul was writing to, it was even harder for them because their whole lives were filled with persecution and threat because of their Christian faith. Paul himself was run out of that town when he tried to share the gospel there. Much of what he writes about in First and Second Thessalonians has to deal with living under, under stress and persecution. And yet he tells them rejoice, always pray, continually give thanks in all circumstances. Lean into the tension, knowing, knowing that Jesus has been there before you. And that he will be there with you in the midst of this. As David shared during our shepherd's prayer time, we are most thankful for the salvation that Jesus has brought and the relationship with God that we have. It's that call to live in faithfulness and worship. Living with joy. You see, the tension doesn't have to take away our joy. The difficulty doesn't take away our joy. We lean into it, but we lean into it with the power of Christ and with the message of the gospel that seeks the best way we can to live a faithful life according to the truth, first of all, and then when we have the opportunity to be able to share that, but to share that with love and humility and grace. And it enables us to live with joy. So as we close not just this sermon, but this series, we close it with the question, how can we be good, bad guys in our world today? How do do we do that? How do we do that? And I want us to remember two specific things today. Number one, seek Christ's kingdom and righteousness first. As you know, that's right out of Matthew 6.33. And the next verse is important too. Verse 34 says, don't worry about tomorrow. And when you're living with tension, when you're trying to love God and love the world, the way Jesus did, the way God does, it might make you worried about tomorrow. It might make you worried about this week or next month or next year. And so we lean into that tension. And we accept that call and we refuse to take the easy way out and go one extreme or the other. But like Jesus, we seek to live lives filled with grace and truth. Seek Christ's kingdom and righteousness first. And then secondly, love others the way Christ loves you. Love others the way Christ loves you. And he does. Oh, he does. He gave his life for you. And now he calls on you to love others the way he has loved you. Being good, bad guys means loving God and loving the world, just like Jesus did. If we can help you do that today, come as we stand and sing our song together. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus, fall tenderly upon your ear. Sweet is cry of love and pity, call up, turn and listen, sing and tear. He that labored and cried and laid upon
Thank you again for being here this morning. We'd like to say if you are visiting with us, we're glad you uh, came to West Durham. We want to invite you back at your next opportunity. Our closing song will be the first verse of When We All Get to Heaven. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing His mercy and His grace. pray with me please dear god we approach your throne recognizing your majesty and wonder and greatness and we realize father how much we have to really be thankful for we have so many things in this life and and of all people we are among the most blessed you allow us to live in a country that provides a great many freedoms and liberties for us and we're able to worship you in safety and we're able to worship you as you teach us to do and father we realize that people have given their lives to provide this freedom and and we thank you for them as well for the patriots but father we realize that in spite of how great it is to be in America and to enjoy the wonderful blessings that you provide every day. We're looking forward to that land where we will spend eternity with you forever. And where there will be no sadness and no sorrows and no tribulations and no troubles, no illness. And Father, we pray that you will help us not to get wrapped up in the daily turmoil that we experience, but to be able to think about and to consider and to rejoice in the great promises that you've made for that life throughout eternity with you. And all of that's possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he shed his blood for our sins and Father, we pray that as we leave this morning, you will help us to honor you, not just while we're here together, but help us to honor you every day, every hour, every minute, every second of our lives. These blessings we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.